glory, America. Bonjour, high Canada. That music means it's the last radio hour of the week. That means it is time for the Hillsdale Dialogue. Once a week, we go very high and we go sometimes very old. Today, we are going way back with Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, and his colleague, Dr. Carl Young, who has been teaching classics at Hillsdale College for a long time. Got his Ph.D. from Duke. He's been on before. We welcome you back, Professor Young. It's good to have you both, Dr. Arn. Welcome. We're talking about constitutions, which is a good time, because all of a sudden we are looking at the constitutions on the table in this election. I don't know if you agree with that, Dr. Arn, but it's good to look back at Polybius because the constitution's on the line in November. Well, if you read the papers, the election's already over and the constitution's <laughs> already dead. <laughs> <laughs> we are not giving up. We are no, not, giving, not up. giving up. It, uh, I heard that Joe Biden distinguished himself this morning. Uh, uh, it was on Wednesday. He, he said that um, the well, I'll play it for you, too, because I've got it on my permanent board now. Uh, and Dr. Young, be prepared. This is uh, the, the president is being interviewed by a CBS reporter who happens to be African-American. And this transpired. Have you taken a cognitive? No, test? I haven't taken a test. Why the hell would I take a test? Come on, man. That's like saying you, before you got in this program, you take a test where you're taking cocaine or not. What do you think, huh? Are, are you a junkie? What do you are you a junkie? So, Dr. Arn, uh, are you a junkie? I mean, you, there's... <laughs> I guess... My answer is not this morning. <laughs> <laughs> Dr. Young, what, could, what possibly inappropriate question could I ask a classicist at Hillsdale? Are you a Canadian? I mean, are you... <laughs> Am I a Tar Heel, Hugh? Oh, there you go. There yeah, you go. Yeah. You're a dookie. I could have, well, let's get to the subject at hand. Polybius. Uh, Dr. Young, I got to tell you, I'm sure Harvey Mansfield brought this up in Gov 103 A or B, but I either skipped class or I slept through it. Because when Dr. Arndt said we want to do Polybius, I said, huh? Uh, you know, do you get that a lot? Uh, yeah, I think Polybius is definitely an... an uh, unappreciated or underappreciated uh, figure in the in the history of political thought. Uh, he's enormously influential on uh, Renaissance political theorists, uh, early moderns, uh, the American founders, uh, but he's not read much anymore, uh, even amongst classicists. And, and I got to say, Doctor Arn, I've read the Federalist Papers. I know Washington watched, you know, Seneca again and again. I did take all these political theory classes. I've t I've done the Hilldale Dialogues for eight years. I mean, how ca how can I not know about Polybius? And I, when I was reading up on this, I thought to myself, "Boy, am I going to sound dumb?" So I might as well hang a lantern on my problem. Well, uh, Polybius is the word Polybius is the password to elite political philosophy. <laughs> well, I was never <laughs> smart enough to be a Straussian. That's it. That's why I never got. <laughs> the audience should, uh, our listeners should hear this. Um, Polybius personifies the transition from Greece to Rome. It's uh, one of the most important things. Polybius was a, conqu a, conqu a conquest. He personally was a commander in the war in which Rome defeated the Achaean League, the Greek cities, and Macedon, too. And he was a hostage, and he was taken to Rome for a long time, 17 years, Carl writes in his notes. And, uh, and he was the toast of the town. He, he, got, he went to best parties. He became friends with, the, with uh, a descendant of, uh, adopted descendant of Scipio Africanus, who, con who conquered Carthage. 
and he was present for the final conquest of Carthage. So, wow. And that's that's odd, isn't it? Yeah, well, to be there when they destroy Carthage and sow salt in the fields, that will leave an impression on you of Roman might. But a lot of people skip over the... the uh, He records the great virtue of the Romans. And then he writes these histories, and what he does, Carl, Carl will tell us about this, what he does is he deploys the fruits of Greek political thought to an analysis of Rome. And that means that Aristotle's categories of understanding regimes and, and uh, uh, Aristotle and Plato and the, and the Greeks' understanding of human character, parts of, uh, of the histories of Polybius read like Plutarch's lives. So it's, a, it's, it's an amazing thing, and it knits together uh, that uh, most important transition in the ancient world. So, Dr. Young, when we've got... Uh, uh, a new figure like Polybius, who's, who's new to a lot of the audience. I like to set the, the time frame. Larry just said he was a soldier, a cavalryman, I believe, and he was conquered. When did Rome beat the living daylights out of Greece? What, what period of time are we talking about? Uh, so this is, this is uh, in the 3rd and 2nd centuries B.C., uh, mostly. It, it, there were a series of wars between, uh, between the Romans and the Macedonian kingdoms in Greece, um, that took place at the end of the third century, and the Greeks managed to wrestle away a, a bit of independence from the Macedonian kingdom during this time, and they formed uh, what Dr. Arn referred to as the Achaean League, uh, which was this loose federation of Greek city-states that were sort of striving against Macedonian encroachment. Uh, and Polybius uh, came from a very influential family that was one of the leaders of this Achaean League. And he was sort of groomed to be the next uh, big commander-in-chief of this league. And he, he rose to the ranks pretty quickly, became a cavalry commander, uh, led the Achaean League uh, against the Romans. They ended up switching sides and fighting against the Romans. Uh, and they paid for it dearly because the Romans punished them. They took over a 1,000 of the most prominent Greek citizens as hostages, as Dr. Arn referred to. And, and, and Polybius was one of these. Um, so, so he was taken back to Rome as a hostage for, for nearly 17 years. Now, um, Dr. Arn, when we last talked last week, we were doing Philip and Alexander, and Alexander died without an heir, and the civilized, conquered world was broken up. How did Greek and Macedon, Greece and Macedon, emerge from Alexander's grip and back into semi-autonomous status? Well, they didn't emerge so well, right? They, they, uh... Uh, when Alexander died, uh, the, the imperial pretensions of Greece died with him. And the people who acquainted them with that fact was Rome. And, uh, and so just think of the bitterness. You know, Polybius knows Greek history. He's a, he's a, he's a kalos kagathos. He's a good and beautiful gentleman. And he's a learned man. And he's a warrior and a very good warrior. And so to see all that defeated and then be hauled off to Rome, and then, wow, because he took to it in a, in a heartbeat. At the beginning of Polybius' history is, very, is a parallel to the beginning of the great work by Thucydides, because Thucydides says there that this point where the Greeks turned on each other and had the Peloponnesian War is a chance to examine the Greeks in motion when they're under stress. 
and he makes the same point about Rome. He observed the 53 years, he says, in which the Romans conquered the world. And we need to understand, we can understand very much by seeing how they did that and why they did that. And his ultimate judgment about that is that it was good that they did that. They deserved to. And one of the signs of that is their treatment of Polybius. Because one of the things about Rome was, you know, it was it, there's that old joke about Israel that their most important thing in their defense is they declare war on the United States and get be- beaten and then we'll take care of them. Yeah. <laughs> well, the, the, the Romans were like that, right? It wasn't the worst thing in the world. I mean... If you know, it, it could be the worst thing in the world to fight the Romans. As but if Carthage you didn't fight found them out, too much. Yeah, then, you don't uh, want to be Carthage. That's it. You know, it. Uh, so it, it he 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 stands at that turning point in history, and he brings. And see, you know, the 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 old saying is that Rome conquered Greece, but also Greece conquered Rome, because you know, at, for for the next centuries, I don't know how many Carl does. Uh, you know, everybody in Rome learned Greek. All the young men and, and ambitious young people, they learned Greek, and they wrote in Greek, and they studied Greek. Because these great works, see, they were, and you know, they're not, you know, except maybe in a few, in Cicero and some of the historians. I, I don't want to sell Rome short, but, you know, Greek philosophy is the beginning of all that. And Rome carried it forward all over the world more than Alexander did. And in, a, in the series we are about, we are trying to get from the beginning of recorded time in the Old Testament to the present, who carried the baton. And Polybius is one of those people who took the baton from Greece into Rome. When we come back from break, we'll talk about why and how with Dr. Carl Young, President Larry Arn of Hillsdale College. All things Hillsdale, including your opportunity to sign up for Imprimus, which you ought to do today for free is at hillsdale.edu. All of our conversations over eight years collected at hughforhillsdale.com. Stay tuned, America. Welcome back, America. Hugh Hewitt. That music means we're in the Hillsdale Dialogue, our weekly conversation with Dr. Larry Arn. And this week, Professor Carl Young, Dr. Young, is a professor of classics at Hillsdale College. You can go find some amazing video courses at hillsdale.edu. You can sign up for Imprimus there. You can get all of our previous conversations uh, as we lap around the world and the philosophies which have built it and the uh, historical figures that have driven it at hillsdale.edu. Dr. Young, um, Polybius, as my notes tell me, uh, wrote the histories. And so how long are the histories and are they taught at Hillsdale? Do you teach them? Uh, yes, you. I teach them quite frequently because I think they're uh, an important, pivotal work. They're basically the text that... He, the histories of the text I use to link uh, the, the Greek world and the Roman world together uh, in, our, in our core class, Greco-Roman literature and culture. Um, so the histories, uh, they were, it was a 40-volume or 40-book history of Sheesh. the Roman Empire. Uh, unfortunately, uh, very little of it survives. We have uh, the complete text of Book 1 to 5. Uh, we have fragments of uh, almost all of Book Six, um, uh, which is the book on, on the Roman Constitution, um, and we have fragments of other books. Um, the vast majority of it is lost. No, Doctor, uh, let me pause. People always ask me why have we not got the complete works of Aristotle. We got some of it. Why do we have 
one-seventh of Polybius. What happened? Uh, that's a great question, um, and I really don't know the textual tradition of Polybius that well. Uh, you know, a lot of this is just the vagaries of history. Um, certain texts just got preserved and others didn't, and uh, it's a shame. Uh, you know, the, 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 the burning of the library at Alexandria is, is one of the great tragedies in human history, I think. That was, you know, the collection of all human knowledge at that point, um, at least in the, in the Mediterranean region. And the loss of that was huge. Um, uh, you know, I, I really it's, uh, can't worth, tell you. It's, it's worth mentioning that a lot of the classic texts were recovered by Arabs. Yes, and that's came, right. And and uh, you know, I once had an argument with a with a diplomat in Japan. He said, "Well, you don't understand the Middle East. They're they're Eastern people like us." And I said, "Well, you know, I think Jesus is a prophet in Islam, and so is Abraham." And I think the classic texts come, to, many of them come to us through Arab hands. And Farabi and Avicenna and some of those guys, those were first-rate classical scholars. And he said, and the guy looked at me and said, most people don't know these things. I said, I don't know about that, but I think they're true. <laughs> well, Dr. Young, it makes me sad, though, when you, when you think a 40-volume history, how long it must take an individual to write that and what, what do we have, six books? Is that what you were ra- wrapping up to say before I interrupted you? Uh, roughly. I mean, we have, we have five complete books, and the rest are fragmentary. Okay, and so in those books, uh, I mean, how many pages are we talking about? What's the text length? Is it like reading the Bible? Is it, is it like reading a few chapters? So, so a book, uh, when we're talking about classical text, a book means the amount of text that you could fit on a papyrus roll. Um, so that, you know, that's roughly equivalent, say, uh, uh, Plato's Apology, maybe something that's familiar. Of, that, that would fit onto one papyrus roll. So we know a lot about his life, but we don't have really a majority of his work. We, but we have the key part, right? We have his thoughts on the Roman Constitution, about which we'll talk after the break. Uh, did, he, did he have a ruffle and flourish at the beginning? Did he set out his ambitions? At the beginning of the histories, yes. yes. Uh, he, he sets himself quite a task. Uh, he, he, I'm going to quote directly from the histories, if that's okay. Please. He says he, he wanted to answer the question, quote, how and thanks to what kind of constitution almost the entire known world was conquered and brought under a single empire, the empire of the Romans, in less than 53 years, end quote. So that's his task, is to... To, to discover how Rome managed to defeat not only the Carthaginians, which were the major power at the time, but also the other major power, the Macedonian kingdoms and the Greeks. Well, given the ambitions of the Chinese Communist Party, maybe it's a good thing we don't have the whole 40 books. Uh, <laughs> I'll be right back, America. Dr. Larry Arn, president of Hillsdale College, Dr. Carl Young, professor of classics. What did Polybius conclude, and why did he conclude it? Don't go anywhere. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue. Welcome back, America. It's Hugh Hewitt. The Hillsdale Dialogue is underway. All things Hillsdale are collected at hillsdale.edu. And once a week, we go very high and very old with Dr. Larry Arn, often president of Hillsdale College, usually one or more of his colleagues, and this time Dr. Carl Young, professor of classics at Hillsdale College, joins us. Uh, professor Young, when we went to break, we had just begun to talk about what Polybius set himself out, and you quoted him. Um, when he got captured, he was a soldier. 
A lot of soldiers are extremely well-read, and I think of General Mattis and General Petraeus. Was this soldier well-educated and well-read when he was captured by the Romans? Uh, absolutely, and, and as Dr. Arn pointed out earlier, I think this is one of the, the fascinating aspects of his, his approach to history and political theory, is that he's clearly very well-educated. He, he shows that in his works he alludes uh, to Xenophon, to Plato, to Aristotle, um, and he's often compared to Thucydides because Thucydides was sort of his model for writing. He takes that sort of Thucydidean approach to history. Um, he, he calls his work pragmatic history, um, by which he means the focus is on political action. So his, his stated aim is to provide lessons for statesmen. Um, so he wants to take the, the Greek political theory that he is just imbued with and apply it to real-world situations uh, for statesmen and, and generals like himself. Um, and and uh, so that, I think, is a crucial aspect of the way he approach, approaches the work. And he, he, he takes Plato to task at several points, for example, um, by saying that, um, you know, Plato has already covered a lot of the things that Thucydides talks about, but it's, he calls Plato too long-winded uh, to be useful for ordinary situations. Uh, he, as a practical historian, he's going to look for what works. I am imagining, Dr. Arn, but I have not studied Polybius, that the framers are attracted to Polybius because they have an actual task in front of them in Philadelphia. They've got to make something that work. Uh, that, that, that will endure. So he would have, as opposed to the Republic, a, a, a much greater appeal for people who actually have to get a government that works. Yeah, Polybius operates right in their sweet spot. Um, the parts of Polybius we have don't reproduce, you know, Plato's forms and, you know, Aristotle's metaphysics. They're about politics and ethics and character. And so, and, and he's, uh, Polybius is an orthodox Aristotelian about regimes. He says that the, there, there are three kinds, you know, depending on how many rule, and of each kind there are two, one's good and one's bad, and the best regime is to mix up the three kinds, the mixed regime, and that's the one that can be stable because the, the, the one, the, the monarch and the few, the aristocrats and the many, the demoi, the democracy, they offset each other. Well, the founders took that, and in one of the great innovations in, in history, they, they built such a regime, but drawing all of its authority from the people. And that meant that uh, we have an executive who's elected by one process, and we have a Senate that's elected now, <laughs> was chosen before by an indirect process, but it, it, it's appointed or elected from the people in a different way than the executive. And then we have a House of Representatives, and they are uh, elected on a third schedule. And then you have a Supreme Court, and they're appointed for life. And so that, and, and, and then you have the states, and all of those, all of those different organizations draw their authority from some part of the great body of the people, and some of it from all of the great body of the people. And so what, what the founders were doing was, was figuring, uh, contriving a way so you could have government by consent, which is not known in the, in the ancient world, with that sort of element of mixed regime, which, which uh, breeds stability. And the constitutional crisis 
in our time is that we're attempting to replace all that with a regime of technocrats who rule because they're trained in the social sciences and can manage the society. That's why you get governors of states writing a thousand pages of rules about how to behave during the coronavirus. Dr. Young, if I break in, this is this is where the vanity of of being alive kicks in. People always think their regime will endure. They, they, I, and I want to ask you if Polybius had the same vanity that we know of. The, the Spartans thought their regime would endure. The Athenians thought their regime would endure. I'm not sure that, that uh, Alexander had that vanity. The Jews certainly always believed that their God would protect them. Did, did Polybius think that the mixed Roman Republic was not only the best, but also never going to go away? Didn't, did he anticipate the Roman Revolution? Uh, well, this is one of the most important parts of this is, uh, excuse me, Polybius' account of, of, of the Roman Constitution is his theory of constitutional change, or anacyclosis is the Greek term. Uh, so he, he says the, the simple regimes that, that Dr. Arne just referred to, so a, a kingship, a democracy, an aristocracy, those are simple regimes, according to Polybius, because they're not mixed. And those, he says, are they, they uh, follow this naturally occurring cycle where they sort of contain the seeds of their own destruction, and that those types of regimes inevitably uh, deteriorate and change into a lesser form. So an aristocracy naturally de- degenerates into an oligarchy, Democracy naturally degenerates into a mob rule. Now, he saw the mixed constitution as the solution to this cycle of constitutional change. He thought because the powers were mixed, and this is the, the important and the, and the innovative part of, of Polybius's theory of the mixed constitution, is that he saw the virtue of the Roman constitution being its separation of powers. See, Plato and Aristotle had talked about an in, a mixed constitution before Polybius, but they didn't distinguish this aspect of separation of powers, and Polybius does. And he thought that, that that separation of powers is what makes the Roman regime stable. Yeah, I, I always begun con law, and I've been teaching it forever with Montesquieu, and then go to Locke, and then go to the framers. But it seems to me that mixed constitution actually puts its stake into the ground with Polybius. That's right, right. Um, and he's, he's the one, you know, most people think that Montesquieu comes up with this idea of separation of powers, but he really takes that from Polybius. Um, I, I just didn't, I'm so amazed at my stupidity, uh, but I suppose Larry will say that's really not that uncommon. I, I want to go back and say, did he, what, what did he think about one-year term, for example, of councils? I've always thought that was the great problem with the Roman Republic. Uh, well, well, Polybius saw it as a virtue because uh, what happened at the end of that one year was that the people had the power to audit that consul, and they gave uh, a judgment on on their rule, uh, whether it was good or bad or corrupt or unjust or whatever, and they could be fined or imprisoned, or although it didn't happen very often, it, theoretically they could. Uh, so that limit, that term limit, uh, along with the people's audit, was a check on the power of the consuls, um, who, in, in certain respects, had supreme authority uh, within certain spheres of the government. 
Well, obviously, Dr. Arn, the framers were not sold on one-year councilships. They also weren't sold on a divided councilship as the Romans were. They wanted one executive, the unitary executive. So they, they obviously just didn't take their Polybius and copy it down. They had to, they had to improve on it. Well, they, uh, Carl made a good point and corrects an earlier point I made, which is I said that there was orthodox analysis from Aristotle, but it begins with that, right? And this dividing of power, see, the consulship and the one-year term, that's an element of that, right? You don't want, uh, you know, they in emergencies, Rome would appoint a dictator, yes. right? And he could do whatever he wanted. For six months, yep. Yeah, but the great ones, you know, are famous for, you know, George Washington followed them. Uh, of uh, When the emergency was over, they gave up their office. And what that meant was that there was an amazing discipline you know the romans were tremendous people right especially in this time the republic is healthy they're conquering the world and you know about this eternal thing you know there's a famous story that was known to polybius that scipio africanus when he defeated carthage decisively they didn't destroy it until two more wars but when he defeated him he uh, cried outside the walls of Carthage, anticipating that eventually this would happen to Rome. So the, the, Rome was not fueled by utopian hopes, which you know we tend to be today, the worst of us. Rome was uh, fueled by a sense of the good and of service to that and the gods. And so, you know, in its, he, 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 yeah, Polybius is recording it at its strength. And you can really see the greatness of it. Dr. Young, what did Polybius think about people? Did, 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 did he have a low view? And by that, I mean a Madisonian view. Men are not angels. Uh, did, did he understand people? Uh, yeah, so his view of human nature is, is pretty interesting. He, 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 um, he basically sees human beings as, as fundamentally self-interested and, and motivated by fear of bodily harm. Um, and, and that's sort of the basis of his constitutional theory. Um, you know, he starts off with a kind of, when he begins his account of the constitutional change, he starts off with a kind of state of nature argument almost, um, where he imagines a situation. He says, look at all these legends we have about a great flood or a famine that wipes out mankind. What would society look like after that? And he imagines this scenario where, Basically, out of that, uh, some strong man would arise. That's interesting. Jonah Goldberg's most recent book always uses that strong man thing, and I guess it's been around a long time. I'm coming right back. Don't go anywhere. Dr. Larry Arn, Dr. Carl Young of Hillsdale. All things Hillsdale are at hillsdale.edu, our final segment right after this. I'll be right back. The Hillsdale Dialogue on Polybius continues right after this. Welcome back, America. It's the Hillsdale Dialogue, and it's got me depressed. Dr. Arn has depressed me with his story of Scipio outside the, uh, the, the walls of Carthage. Um, we are, it, it, the Roman Revolution is a period of decades over which the rules slowly eroded. And so if Polybius was writing about the height of the Roman Republic when it was at its strongest, he did not anticipate the destruction of the most maiorum. Dr. Arndt, do you, you said we're in a constitutional crisis. Do you think it has to end badly because of the nature of the downward evolution of regimes? Uh, well, every human thing eventually passes away, so sure. 
But that doesn't tell us anything about what's going to happen now. If you study Polybius and study Aristotle and study Plato and study Winston Churchill, who is sublime on this point, the decisive thing is not trends. That's historicist thinking. The decisive thing is choices. You know, in, in one way, this is a great moment because I think that this, the questions in this election are going to be exquisitely clear for anybody who has the eyes to see. And the American people get to choose, and that's what we want. So, you know, and I mean, there's lots of confusion, right? Uh, and there'll be attempts to sustain that and elevate that. You know, Trump's tweets, you know. Uh, the, Joe Biden's gaffes. Yeah, I mean, they're, you know. Yeah. But the truth is, what, what are they? Americans should learn to think. What uh, Church, Churchill analyzing the Nazis, and I'm not calling anybody in this election a Nazi, but he says you must consider the uh, character of the Nazi regime and the rule which it implies, right? So both of these, both, you know, in, in their various uh, imperfect way, sometimes incoherent way, both are articulating a way of life. And you, you have to look at that and think which is the better. And uh, that's, you know, and so Polybius is important because he comes at a turning point, and it's, uh, the word crisis means turning point. And so it's good to go back and think. And, uh, it, it, you know, you, the ancient world is very different from the modern world. That's a deep truth. But another d- deep truth is not so different in some important ways. And, Dr. Young, when your students are done with Polybius, are they optimistic or pessimistic about the American regime? I think in general they're usually uh, pessimistic. I think, um, you know, uh, Polybius, he does kind of have this uh, pessimistic view. Um, I think that's why he's so influential on Machiavelli. Um, they share a similar sort of view of, of nature, of human nature, uh, of the place of politics. And it's, it's, a, it's a pessimistic one. Um, and that's why I always... Uh, follow in class, I follow Polybius uh, with Cicero's wonderful dialogue on the Republic, uh, because book one of of Cicero's on the Republic uh, spends a great deal of time responding uh, precisely to uh, Polybius' account of the Roman Constitution. That's interesting, because long after Polybius and Scipio, both Scipio, you get Cato, the noblest Roman of them all, and you get Cicero, the greatest orator. I mean, it isn't inevitable, Dr. Art. Nothing is inevitable. No. And, you know, you can't get yourself in a heck of a mess, because when you mention Cicero, think of the characters that were around at that time, Julius Caesar and Cicero and Brutus and all them. And in their different ways, they were all trying to save the Roman Republic. And they didn't. And they, you know, and they they ended up killing each other a lot. Sula, Pompey, I mean, they're just all over the place. Great. Marcus Crassus, they're all over the place. Events can get out of hand. But the good news is you can't know if they have uh, one place as part. And uh, this this is a good time to be playing a part. And it's dangerous, of course. Uh, I, I just I am encouraged by this. I, last question, Doctor. You know, do your students like Polybius? Uh, that's a good question, and I don't know. Um, 
I, I don't know if they would say they like him or not. He's definitely good for generating discussion in the classroom. Um, I think a lot of a lot of our students have a kind of um, visceral reaction, particularly to his view of human nature and the sort of like pessimistic account of constitutions. Um, oh well, that's my reaction. So I, I need to go back to the classroom. Last question, Doctor Arn. When when you encounter Polybius, is there a Polybius scholar other than Dr. Young? Is there one of those people out there who, who did their PhD work on him that you were aware of? I don't know if Dr. Young did. Did you, Dr. Young? Uh, I did not. I did my dissertation on Plato. Uh, okay. Uh, Dr. Arndt, I, is I there... An, Go ahead. I do have an article coming out on Polybius, but uh, that's not out yet. Oh, I will I will carry that out to the world. Dr. Arndt, any of your, your buddies in the world of political theory, Polybius doctorates? I can't name one. I, I don't I don't think so. And I, you know, I'm not a Polybius scholar as much as Carl is. I, I know it because I taught it to a kid. We know the kid, the Amundsen's, right? A long time ago, you know, when I was at Claremont Institute, and he wanted to study that book, and he was just a teenager. And so wow. I read it with him, and I fell in love with it. And that's my knowledge of it. That is good knowledge for people to know of. It is all at HughForHillsdale.com, or better yet, Go to hillsdale.edu. Thank you, Dr. Young. Thank you, Dr. Arn. Another amazing Hillsdale dialogue is in the books. Another week is in the books. I will be back on Monday, America. Thank you, Dwayne, who will be on vacation again next week. Thank you, Ben and Harley. Thank you, Adam. It is the Hugh Hewitt Show.